The world of agriculture technology is vast and constantly evolving, with new innovations and companies emerging at a rapid pace. At AgTech Media Group, we understand the importance of staying updated and connected in this dynamic industry, and that's why we're thrilled to announce the launch of our new AgTech Company Directory, a comprehensive and user-friendly resource designed to help you navigate the complex landscape of AgTech innovators. More than just a list, it's a curated collection of companies leading the charge in transforming the AgTech sector from startups pioneering new farming methods to established companies adopting cutting-edge technologies. Our directory spans a wide range of leaders dedicated to advancing agriculture through technology. Whether you're a farmer looking for the latest in crop monitoring tools, an investor seeking promising ag tech startups, or a researcher interested in sustainable farming practices, ag tech directory is designed to cater to your specific needs. You can filter by sector, technology, size, or location to find exactly what you're looking for. To learn more and to claim your company listing, visit agtechcompanies.com. If you are starting a vertical farm and don't know where to begin or which technology would suit your needs, then reach out to the experts at Cultivated. As indoor farm brokers, they help connect you to the right technology and ensure your project is successful. Best of all, their service is free because they work on behalf of their partners. Visit cultivated.com to learn more. And that's spelled C-U-L-T-I-V-A-T-D.com or click the link in the show notes. Most people focus in on reducing the cost of electricity. That's dumb. It's really, really dumb. What they really do should do is do like Zale and focus in on how to increase the yield for every kilowatt of electricity you're using. They're looking at the wrong formula, looking at the spreadsheet. They're looking at the spreadsheet. They're not looking at the analysis of it. Welcome to the Vertical Farming Podcast, weekly conversations with fascinating CEOs, founders, and ad tech visionaries. Join us every week as we dive deep into the world of vertical farming with your host, Harry Duran. Vertical Farming Podcast, Season 7, regular listeners to the show. I'm always thankful for you coming back each and every week, each and every season to listen, to support, to spread the word, to say hi to me at the conferences that I'm meeting you at to say hi to me on socials. I really appreciate all the support and love you're giving to the show and helping to spread the word. I truly appreciate it. If this is your first time listening, I am welcoming you as well. First time listener. Thank you so much for discovering and finding this show. I'm always eager to learn how that happened. And that invite is always open to email me directly, harry at verticalfarmingpodcast.com. I'd love to know who was kind enough to point you our way. In case you missed last week's episode, we had a really great discussion with Jazz Singh. He's the founder and CEO of Innovation Agritech Group. We discussed how his exposure to the farming industry in India and his family's generational farming background led him to explore innovative solutions for food security. Jazz shared how IAG's modular and scalable solutions are enabling their clients to quickly turn a profit while improving sustainability at the same time. Make sure you check that out if you haven't already, episode 87. This week, we speak with Zale Tabakban. He's the CEO and founder of Local Grown Salads. And in this episode, you'll hear about his inspiring journey of revolutionizing the way we think about farming. He shares his vision for providing locally grown, ready-to-eat salads to a global market, as well as his patent-pending technology for growing 60 different vegetables. He emphasizes the potential of vertical farming to create good-paying jobs, address the climate crisis, and he also shares his goal of providing consistent high-quality salads to all McDonald's locations worldwide, which according to him, numbers 35,000. That's an impressive goal, and we'll be watching that progress closely. 
as always, if you are enjoying past episodes, if you've enjoyed this episode after you've had a chance to listen to it, please leave a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP. Nothing makes me smile more than to be able to read those out on future episodes. Full show notes for each episode are available at verticalfarmingpodcast.com. I drop that here as a reminder. So if you're listening to the episode and you hear some takeaways or some resources mentioned or are looking to get connected with our guests, all that information will be found in the show notes. So don't feel like you need to take notes. Just follow the show notes in your podcast player of choice. Okay, before we jump into this uninterrupted conversation with Zale, here are a few words from the folks that support this show. This year, Vertiform takes place from September 26th through September 28th at the Exhibition Center in Dortmund, Germany. For those new to Vertiform, it's the most significant trade fair for next-level farming and new food systems. Their international platform is set to showcase the latest developments in innovative controlled production systems for vegetables, salad crops, herbs, and microgreens, as well as sustainable fish, insect breeding, fruit cultivation, and medicinal plants. Vertifarm is shaping the future of vertical farming and new food systems. Reserve your ticket and learn more at vertifarm.de. That's V-E-R-T-I-F-A-R-M dot D-E. If you're a regular listener to the show, you'll know that this is the space where I get to talk about some of the fantastic sponsors and supporters of this show. If you are interested in being one of those sponsors, by all means, reach out to me directly, harry at verticalfarmingpodcast.com. We've got inventory available for season seven, and the reach of the show just continues to increase year over year. And we'd love to partner with you and get the word out about your company or service. So Zale Tabakman, CEO of Local Grown Salads, thank you for joining me on the Vertical Farming Podcast. Thank you. It's exciting. <laughs> Have you been on podcast interviews before? Yep, a lot, actually. I'm re- generally recording one or two a week, so I love it. Yeah. How long have you been listening to or enjoying podcasts? Seven, eight years, I think, at least. I'm a walker. Every night I like to walk for, you know, and so I'm listening for an hour. So I'm always, I just listen to podcasts. Have you heard any recent ones recently that have been pretty interesting? Yeah. (laughs) I'm a history guy, a business guy. So I'm continuously listening to podcasts on business and history and business history and stuff like that. I was listening to Masters of Scale. Oh, yeah. I love that one. You love it? Reed Hoffman. And I'm really behind, but this was an interview with Mark Andreessen. You know, the guy who created Mosaic. Yep. So the reason I bring this one up, because I think it's really relevant to what we're talking about. He talked, American Treasons is a venture capitalist and Reed Hoffman is a venture capitalist. And for people who don't know Masters of Scale, Reed Hoffman was the guy who started LinkedIn and he was part of PayPal. And so he's that kind of guy. And they were talking about timing and every podcast in Masters of Scales has a theme. And the theme was timing, timing of businesses. And what he talked about was businesses, they invest in businesses. And one of the things that they find interesting is that the same idea shows up five years, fails, 10 years, fails, five years later, 15 years, fails. And then 20 years later, all of a sudden, it's massively successful. So I think it speaks to our industry, Yeah, (laughs) right? (laughs) It speaks to our industry. Yeah, that's going to resonate with a lot of folks who are listening, I'm sure. 100%. I mean, when I start, I've been at this since 2013. And I remember when I first started getting into it, I was listening to a video, it was a YouTube video, about three or four guys who had founded indoor vertical farming companies and they failed. And they got these three or four guys on this video podcast. And I recommend anybody in our industry should read this 
watch it if they could find it. Wish I could tell you the names. Yeah, we could circle back after the show. Once if you get a hold of it, send it to me. And by the time this episode goes live, we'll put it in the show notes. Terrific, terrific. If I can. Anyways, and they had these three or four guys getting up and they talked about all the things that they did wrong and all the things that went south and why their projects failed. And I was sitting there scribbling notes, like one after another, after another. Okay, okay, I got this. Like, So everything I've done is not everything, but a lot of it was built around their set of problems and the set of failures that they had, right? And all our technology has been built. A lot of it is like, okay, that failed, that failed, that failed. And then, you know, of course, I have my own set of things I've done wrong over, you know, the last <laughs> seven, eight years and 10 years. But they... But it's true. And what happens is I see, you know, lately in the last couple of months, there's been a quite a few more failures, right? Yeah. And a lot of them are same set of problems over and over again. So it was a list of what not to do when you were watching that video. <laughs> it was a what not to do and what is going to cause your failure. And it's it's pretty interesting. Anyway, so that you asked for an interesting podcast. Yeah, I thought yeah, that yeah. would be interesting and relevant that, to what we're that's talking That's definitely to. relevant. I love when the world's, you know, converge of podcasting, vertical farming, business, you know, learning lessons from people that have forwarded the path, you know, been down the road before and just kind of figure out what works and what doesn't. So let's just rewind the clock back a little bit. It sounds, and, and from the look that I took on LinkedIn, is that you've definitely been involved in business for a bit of your career. So, you know, as far back as you want. I have kids your age. <laughs> I have kids your age. Let's leave it at that. Yeah. When did everything start for you? you know, what's your earliest recollection of having this entrepreneurial or this business bug? I was 16 years. I remember I was 15, 16 years old. I got involved in uh, not a Ponzi scheme, but, you know, the marketing where you sign up people and they sign up other people. Multi-level marketing. Up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Multi-level marketing, right? It was called Best Way and it was kind of like an Amway type thing. And I'm running out buying, you know, a whole bunch of, it was a disaster. It was a horrible disaster, but I have lots of disasters. <laughs> Is this pick on sale day? I don't know. Anyway. No, I mean, it's interesting because I think I've been an entrepreneur since 2015 and I was in previously in corporate. So I had that security of the, you know, getting your check deposited in your account, <laughs> your, your pay every twice a month, you know, and it's interesting what you learn as an entrepreneur is to be comfortable with failure and not you know, you almost see it as a necessary rite of passage and it shows you just really quickly what doesn't work. And so then I think what I found for me, and maybe this is something you can relate to is, you know, in the beginning, I'd be like, woe is me and just like licking my wounds and like where are those thousands of dollars just flushed down the toilet or, you know, over the years, I just realized I just get up faster, you know, I just like I dust myself off and I'm like, okay, that didn't work. Let's try the next thing. Let's try the next thing. And I think you just develop that armor or that entrepreneurial armor to just kind of continue like moving forward. Because I think it's this idea of like continuous progress forward that really helps to toughen you up as an entrepreneur. I agree. I call it following forward. Yeah. I'm always failing, but I'm always failing forward. I mentioned I read, you know, when I talk about history, my time of history that I love is about like the 1860s. American, I'm a Canadian, by the way, but it's almost American history, 1860s to the early 1920s. And the number of guys who have been very successful and massive failures are just unbelievable, right? I think of Edison. You know, everybody thinks of Edison, you know, great inventor light bulb, you know, created General Electric. Oh my God, this guy failed so many times and he had so many things go wrong, right? So it's, yeah, 100% is just, just, you know, you think you've learned every lesson and then 
and you know, another day, another lesson. Okay, well, let's talk about positive. Yeah, no, I think it's helpful, but especially in this climate. And as you just referred to, like this idea of like a couple of like recent closures of vertical farms. And I think people talk about the cycle of new technologies. And I think we're going through the trough of disillusionment. <laughs> I always refer to it. I always forget what the entire cycle is called, but it's a common cycle in new technologies. And I think people who can make it through this. Oh, yeah. the, ado- uh, the technology adoption curve. A tech- yes, that's right. It. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. You have the innovators and you have the first people that try it out and then you have the early majority like yeah. early adopters yeah. yeah yeah so talk to me about the story of you know let's go just before local grown salads you know you were coming up with the idea what was happening in your world what were you listening to like how did this get on your radar and how did this become your next project yeah so my COO, which actually also happens to be my son, tells the story much better. I'm not a great storyteller, but he tells my story better than I tell my story, but I will share it with you. Okay, so around that time, I had just got divorced and I had five kids and I lived very close to the mother of my kids, like 10 minute walk. So the kids were half the time there, half the time with me, right? So I'm, look, I'm this dad and I'm like, I want to feed my kid healthy stuff. So, and healthy stuff is salads every day. And so I'm very much into food and salads. And I also, at the time, was a big bicycle rider and was doing marathon running. I'm like the guy that shows up at the end, right? <laughs> you know, when they're packing up and these guys finishing, that was me marathon running. Yeah, yeah, I just yeah. want to give the right context. But, you know, I had these kids and they were all teenagers and we're feeding them. And so I'm really focusing on food. So that's kind of my mindset, my head, you know, how would I feed my kids, make sure I get them a salad, you know, how do I get them good food? Not organic, just like a normal, you know, normal food guy. At the same time, professionally, one of the things I was doing was consulting in Canada, I'm Canadian. And I was doing this particular type of Canadian tax consulting called SR and ED, Scientific Research and Experimental Development. I told you it's going to get kind of boring. Yeah, 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 of course. What happens in Canada is if you overcome a technical challenge, the government will give you back 50% of what you make. So if you do engineering design or something and you're, you know, write some software, AI software, it's always the simplest one to explain, right? And you spend, you pay an engineer $100,000, the Canadian government will give you back $50,000. A great program. That is why companies like Microsoft and all these other people, Google, have software development houses in Canada. And why you find so much engineering design there, because England has a similar program and Germany has a similar program. America does not. America does things different. Anyhow, so I'm doing this SNRD consulting. One of my clients was a company that manufactures sandwiches. And every day they would manufacture 3,000 sandwiches a day. So they would service hot, they would service hotels, right? You walk into a hotel, you go to a fancy, you know, a Regency hotel or a Hyatt Regency or something like that. And, you know, you have a meal and you have, you know, 500 sandwiches there. This company would actually manufacture the sandwiches for the Hyatt Regency. It wouldn't be done in their own places. But if you think about all the things I'm talking about, right, the Hyatt Regency, we would want our BLT sandwich to taste like this or have this flavor component. So they would work with the shelves there and then they would customize to it. So now you're into a food manufacturing operation, but you're always dealing with fresh foods. This is one. And the chef I was working with was all, you know, we'd have these formulas or recipes for their sandwiches. And it's a big operation, 3,000 sandwiches a day, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. Right. You're probably doing your three kids and you have to make your peanut butter and jam, right? <laughs> anyway. Yeah. So there's a whole bunch of issues. I don't want to get into the shred issues. But what was happening was he couldn't get available certain vegetables 
that he'd do, or he couldn't get the quality. So he'd always have to have these swapping, you know, and kind of this lead is I going to use that lead? And he, you know, so he's talking to me all the time about all the problems of getting consistent products. At the same time, I had another client who was doing air into water, which is called, you and I in the industry call it dissolved oxygen, right? And he had a technology that created, put what they called nanobubbles. So it's yeah. dissolved oxygen, but at a very low level. And he had this technology for it. And he was selling these technologies to people who grow fish, right? Shrimp and fish and stuff like that. But they were also selling them to people that would put them into their greenhouses and put the waters in. And he was doing all these experiments about how much more when you use dissolved oxygen, you put it there, how quickly your plants will grow. All the, I'm not a hydroponic grower. I grow my stuff in soil. But you can imagine hydroponic guys. This is like critical success factor for that. Anyway, so by the way, I'm a very technically nerdy guy. Anyhow, so this guy was telling me all about how much money there was in the vegetable market. And he was servicing clients in Mexico and all sorts of other places that were growing vegetables. But he was saying, and then he started showing me all the numbers. I'm going, holy crap, <laughs> right? So now back to my kids, I'm starting to say, okay, money in vegetables, who knew, right? Who would have thought there was so much money? I started riding my bicycles. I'm in Toronto. Toronto looks like New York City, right? There's lots of roofs. So I started going in and I started looking at the numbers in, you know, like a bag package of salad. And I was looking at the prices. I'm saying, wait, 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 this bag, remember, I'm buying my kids. So I have to go and buy this bag salad or I have to buy salad. And I don't want to chop it up. So I want to buy a bag salad. So I buy the salad for my kids. And I'm saying, wait, wait, I'm paying like, I can't remember, $2.99, $3.99 for five ounces. And meanwhile, the components, I can buy all the components for five pounds for the same $3.99 or whatever the numbers were at the time, right? It's Many years ago, I think, whoa, there's good money in these bag salads. <laughs> there's gold in these yeah, bag yeah. salads, right? Well, especially since you had someone who had a need for that, because a lot of times the challenge, you know, with some of the conversations I've had over the years, you know, it's creating a great product, but then you have to figure out the marketing part afterwards. And it's, you know, you went to someone who's telling you, expressing to you directly, you know, his need and the fact that there was a hole to fill here. And so I think, you know, that's your business or your entrepreneurial, you know, hat is on, you know, and you're like, opportunity. <laughs> Uh, yeah, bingo. And then I say, okay, so I put the studio, I'm seeing, I'm riding my bicycle, we're running around, I'm seeing all these roofs. And then I, you know, did a little bit of market research, you know, Canada imports 85% of its food product, right? Because we're cold. By the way, as a side issue for your things, people in Pennsylvania don't understand that when they bring stuff in from California, they're actually importing their food too. They're just importing from one state to the other state. Anyhow, so I said, well, why don't we how why don't we just grow the stuff on the roofs of buildings? Right. And at the same time, you know, I'm investigating this. I ended up going to one of the hospitals and they were telling me how much money they get for food. And you know, I'm just building all this in. And then I said, well, let's put it on the roof. And then I started doing the math of roofs, right? And I'm saying, okay, well, if I grow this amount and I sell this amount and I do the dollars and cents, I'm a numbers guy. So first thing is like I just do the Excel, I start from the Excel spreadsheet. Right. And then I built the business thing out and I realized there's no way I can make any money because I can't get enough yield in a square foot to make money. So why don't I go vertical? And we all have a friend in Google. Right. Don't forget, we all and, and I discover indoor vertical farming and I look at all the different technologies. And then we started buying a few of them and playing with them and saying, holy crap, this stuff is garbage. I could do so much better. How hard can it be? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, famous last words. So timestamp this. What year is this? 
2014. And we start figuring out that this stuff is crap and we start experimenting and we then develop our own technology and, you know, we'll go through different variations and different versions of it, eventually getting to a point where we have a patent pending in Canada and the United States on our version of indoor vertical farming. And, you know, we did a whole bunch of other, remember I started watching those videos about those guys who were failing and all the things and I'm saying, okay, well, I got to make sure my technology doesn't do this. But what is critical that I want, like, it sounds like you're trying to teach all entrepreneurs on how to go into business and ruin their lives, right? <laughs> yeah, I think it's also like what's helpful is, you know, it's nice when we can learn from folks that have gone down the path, that have the scars to prove it, you know, that have tried things that have worked and are still around because I think it's helpful, especially with an industry as new, as relatively new as vertical farming. There's a lot of excitement, a lot of hype, a lot of people want to get in and may not realize and may not have done the homework that you have done or just have the discipline to do that you know, pull out that spreadsheet before they figure out if this is going to make sense. And a lot of times, you know, when we talk about these companies that are getting a ton of funding as well, you know, you're playing with other people's money now. So now it's harder for you to kind of have that lens of really watching every single expense of really watching the cost of things of really figuring out profitability. And these are really important. I think, you know, you realizing that this is something you're bootstrapping yourself. I think that makes sense why you just have a closer eye on making sure this is viable for you. Right. So I want to, one of the things I mentioned earlier, and I want to keep coming back to is I focused in on the gold. Remember I said there's gold in those plastic bags, right? Local grown salads. We're all about creating ready to eat salads. So our goal is to get to that ready to eat salad. So when you eat a salad, you know, when you go buy a company whose name shall remain unmentioned yeah. salad, right? <laughs> but there's a whole bunch of them. I, I'm just I'm being funny. There's four three or four items in them. There's a lettuce, there's a cabbage, there's a shredded carrot, there's something else there. But when you go into the store or you make a salad for your kids or your family, you're going to have seven or eight different products in it. And it's going to have cucumbers and it's going to have cherry tomatoes and it's going to have a herb and it's going to have, you know, whatever else. So part of my requirement was that I need to be able to grow all of that stuff. That's a a tall order. (laughs) That's a taller. Well, in the end, we can now grow 60 different vegetables. We can grow, so, you know, context, we grow microgreens, we grow herbs, so basils and all, you know, I have dill, wherever else you want. We grow greens, so all the types of lettuces, right? And, you know, all the Chinese lettuces, all the different lettuces. And then we also grow all the small vegetables. So we grow peas, beans, cucumbers, cherry tomatoes, all that stuff with our technology. But I had to do it. And the lesson that you know I want to share with all those budding entrepreneurs that want to ruin their lives, right, and not go get a job and not have to worry and work nine to five is you need to start with the end in mind. I'm old enough to remember the 1980s and, you know, seven habits of highly effective people. And one of the seven habits that Kobe talked about was start with the end in mind. And in my case, the end in mind was a ready to eat salad. And being able to sell that salad at the same price that everybody else does, that company that will go unnamed, and be able to sell it at a higher, better quality product. And so all our technology was built around and for the target of being able to do that ready-to-eat salad. So talk to me a little bit about, I'm curious what you saw in that video that was like a red flag for you or something that was you were conscious of as you were heading down this path of what to look out for and what not to do. And, you know, what stood out for you that you incorporated into your business now? 
Yeah. So the one that always struck me as these guys were, the guy came along, I think it was in Chicago, and somebody said to him, here's a $25 million order. And he failed when he got the $25 million order for the production. He couldn't scale it. And the scaling was his challenge. He did not have a scaling plan. He kept talking about, I can't scale it. I can't scale it. Right. And I couldn't scale it. I had this customer that was willing to pay me all the money and he didn't have a scaling plan. So that one of the first things that we built is all our technology is scalable. Meaning that if, hey, you know, Mr. Customer that comes down, you know, Mr. Giant or McDonald's, my goal is actually to service McDonald's. I want to keep in the end in mind. I want to be the guy that sells McDonald's 35,000 locations around the world, salads every day. And when you eat a salad in Tokyo, It'll taste exactly as the same salad as in Toronto or in LA or in Paris. That's to me a scaling, right? McDonald's comes calling and says, I want you to deliver salads to all my locations. I, no, I know McDonald's is not going to show up tomorrow. I know like the whole story. Yeah, how it's but you're happen. ready if and when they do. <laughs> if they, well, I'm, I'm preparing myself to be that guy that McDonald's goes turn to and say, okay, you're the only guy that can do it, right? Or your technology is the only technology that can do it. So... The thing that reminded me biggest was the scaling problem. And then everybody else had a variation of the scaling problem. They couldn't duplicate. And we see this people failing left, right, and center. They couldn't duplicate it. The other thing I think is, I can't remember if it was a part of it, but it probably was, is unit metrics. Focusing in on unit metrics. I do not understand these people who have raised hundreds of millions of dollars, why they're not freaking profitable left, right, and center. This is a brainless business. I grow something. I build my factory, my farm, right? 30 days later, I'm harvesting, or 45 days, or however many days later, I'm harvesting product. Why the hell on unit, why the hell am I not making money every single day after that? Now, I get capital costs, right? I get the difference between capital costs and operating costs, but every one of my operations should be profitable. There is one of our competitors, one of the big players in the industry that's gotten a lot of money from a lot of very big name people. They just shut the, this, they just shut down the plant. Why the hell are you shutting down something that's profitable? Because it's not, which means <laughs> their unit economics are not making money. I don't care how much they're making. If they're making $10 a month, right, it's still better than, you know, I mean, there are scenarios where if you're not making enough, you'll shut it down. But if they're making money, why aren't they just, they're not making money. And if they're not making money, they haven't been paying attention to the unit economics. Yeah. And so for folks that are not familiar with local grown salads, can you talk a little bit about what your current offerings are? And if that's maybe shifted from when you started, because I'd be interested to know and, and like, uh, you know, if that's what it's been from day one, because that's always helpful to know and, and how you've been able to maintain that steady offering to that same market. So talk a little bit about that. <laughs> okay. We haven't pivoted in a big way. We pivoted in a couple of small ways. So I'll tell you where we are right now, and I'll tell you kind of where we pivoted and what we do. We're, as a company, we sell technology, and we sell technology in two ways. So I can sell to, you know, Susie a farm, and I'll sell them our technology, and whatever size technology they want, because our technology is modular, so it's scalable, right? You can start with 5,000 square feet, or you can say, I want 50,000 square feet. I don't care, you know? We sell them the technology. Now, Susie can then buy our technology and they can operate it as a local grown salads licensee, which means that they're going to use our 
branding. They will use, they have to 100% follow every one of our procedures exactly the way we spec it. Remember, keep the end in mind. I want to sell to McDonald's. You've got the Ray Kroc in you. <laughs> yeah, I got the Ray Kroc, but it's got to be exactly the same. Or I could sell to Barbara, who Barbara is a really nice lady. But Barbara says, you know what? I don't like Zale's thing. I know I have a whole bunch of my own clients. I don't want to share my profits with Zale. So I'm just going to buy his technology. I'm going to use it and I'm going to sell it at Barbara's vegetables. And she can operate. She uses our equipment. She uses our thing. She does everything. And at Barbara, and at some point, Barbara and I may compete. Barbara will be the cheaper product in the marketplace because when they're selling it under our brand, I got to make my two cents and then, or it's a little bit more than two cents, but I have to make mine and they have to make theirs. But McDonald's will pay for the consistency and that's what they're paying for. So both Barbara and I can exist in the same marketplace. I want to point out to your visitors, I'm going to keep throwing in ideas so people understand how I think. Between Washington and Boston, there are 55 million people. The market for fresh vegetables of the kinds that I sell, which we, I'm going to get into, you know, the microgreens, the herbs, small vegetables and stuff like that, is $10 billion a year, right? I don't make my money from selling equipment. I mean, I'm going to make some money selling equipment, but ultimately $10 billion a year. And that's 55, that's from Washington to Boston. You know, it's a very tiny space. It does not include places like LA, Chicago, Detroit, Florida, Texas, you know, does not include the market. You know, if you have anybody from Saudi Arabia that wants to partner with me, I want to go after Saudi Arabia. 160 million people who are wealthy, right? Because I have that vision of, you know, rich Arab sheiks, right? Which is really, you know, the reality is a little different. But it's 160 wealthy, 60, and they import 95% of the food that they, right? Yeah, I was in Dubai in October, so shout out to my current sponsor, Cultivated. They were sponsoring the AgriMe conference there, and they flew me out there to interview some CEOs on site. It was really eye-opening, and to your point, you know, the 90-95% of food imported, you know, how they have to irrigate every single thing that's green in that city, and obviously anything else in that area is going through the same challenges. So definitely a lot of opportunity, a lot of money available for investment. So you're knocking on the right doors, and I think it's just a matter of getting connected with the right folks. So back to your question of how I've changed. So I always started with a technology piece. I always started with the salads in mind. What has happened is we went from this model, we added the licensing versus the private label and very formalized our approach to that. I knew I would be, I'm, I have a degree in computer science, but my degree in computer science, people didn't even know there were computers back then. Anyway, I graduated, <laughs> when I graduated computer science, I had 25 people in my class. Now there are you know, 250 people in the class. Anyhow, so we didn't realize the importance of the software. The software was like, yeah, of course I need the software to run this stuff. I didn't realize that my company's competitive advantage would be ultimately the software besides the hardware, integrated tightly with our hardware. We're building a system, our software system that tracks all the way from seed to the person's plate. We do, uh, it's got AI so that, you know, Panera breads, Panera's arugula, they're coming to say it's too spicy, but McDonald's arugula, they wanted a little less spicy. So we can then do a feedback loop and we can modify the grow parameters that we use, blah, blah, blah. I mean, everybody in our industry is doing what I'm doing, but I gave it a name and I have little boxes and I got a beautiful picture that shows all the components. It's Zale's secret arugula recipe. <laughs> yeah, Zale's secret. But we have this software that allows us to actually, that will, the idea is that when a Starbucks wants to buy salads, are ready to eat salads and they're buying on the shelf. 
they'll be able to tap into our system and understand what the shelf life is, where it was built. They'll give us feedback, oh, the shelf life of this particular one wasn't good. And we'll say, well, was it because of something we did? Was it through our distributors? We only go through distributors. I think owning your own trucks is like the dumbest thing that a company could do. Like, why would you go into logistics business? That's a whole nother business. <laughs> yeah, there's Cisco, there's Aeromark, and people are just greedy when they own their own trucks. Anyhow, oh, so the pivot... The big pivot that we've done now is that we're doing microgreens. I did not want to be in the microgreens business. I'm in the microgreens business because I, part of our technology is going to be sitting idle for bits and parts. So we realize we can double up and use it. But, you know, microgreens is a very cool business for your small company, but for a big company or very large volume. What, when you said you didn't want to go into microgreens, what was the, some of the fears that you had? And then what, change your opinion. I have equipment that allows us to grow microgreens really easily. As part of our standard equipment that we do. And it my equipment will be sitting idle. So I'm going to sell to Barbara or Susie, and they're going to pay for this equipment. They need this equipment, but it sits idle for part of the growing cycle for a lot. And if they're only growing herbs, it'll sit idle a lot of time. So they're paying me good money for this equipment. I need to make sure that they can make money off that equipment. So I do microgreens. Microgreens isn't a big market, right? I mean, yes, it's a very profitable piece of, well, so high, I don't know how profitable it is, but it's very high value product. Sure. Right. Or high end restaurants. And yeah. You know, we have a guy that in Philadelphia that wants 10,000 pounds of basil and herbs a month. I'm not going to sell 10,000 pounds of microgreens a month. Right. I'd rather sell that. Right. You know, we talked to a pickle manufacturer that wants cucumbers. They want 20,000 pounds of cucumbers a week. <laughs> right. I'd rather, you know, yes, my margins on my cucumbers are going to be extremely low. But 20,000 pounds a week generates a lot of income, right? Pays a lot of rent, (laughs) pays a lot of salaries, right? And I can grow those and I can grow them exactly the size they want. And by the way, I'm two hours away from you and I can guarantee that you're going to get exactly what you want 365 days a year instead of, you know, you're buying them one month in Texas and another month in Arizona, right? You can do a contract with me, be a fixed price contract for a year and you know your prices. So it's really interesting to see the success you've had, Zio. And then obviously, I, you know, I get the feeling from this conversation, it's a result of all the work you've done, all the research you've done, you know, trying to see what works, what doesn't. And so just for some more clarification, can you talk a little bit about what the physical setup looks like? Because, you know, we've had conversations with people who had to have the indoor farms you can have in your kitchen to a container farm to the 100,000 square foot spaces. So just to give people, you know, a visual of what the unit looks like and where are how it's being used, like what are the applications for it? Like maybe talk a little bit about the partnerships you've created. Okay, so first of all, we're in Philadelphia and I invite all your listeners to find me on LinkedIn, find our company. We're easy to find, local grown salads. And there aren't a lot of Zales in the indoor vertical farming market. So Z-A-L-E or Z-A-L-E if you're in Canada or in England, right? I recommend you come out and see our stuff. So our stuff, are we're tower growers. So our technology is tall, vertical, looks like a wall. You know plenty, you know zip grow, right? So it looks like that. Obviously we don't, but our technology is our own technology. So when you look at, when you walk in, you'll get, that's what you're going to see. And that's what it looks like. Typical, we have these cold, things called grow areas. Sorry, let me, I'm jumping around a little bit. Let me kind of do it very simply. So we do these tower things. So you walk in, you see a tower. And that's why we can grow all those different kinds of vegetables, right? As soon as you want to do it on the bunk bed style, you can't. How are you going to grow a pea? 
right? You got your license so high, you know, right? Uniconomics fall apart. We can grow peas and they just climb up the wall and it looks great. Bees, beans, all that kind of stuff. Cherry tomatoes. We just move the lights in, move the lights out. Those, the things that we grow the seeds in a thing called the seed cartridge. So we pre-do our seed cartridges and we grow them inside the seed cartridge. The seed cartridge sits in what we call a vertical acre. It's about eight feet long, about eight feet high and about three feet wide. And the towers are the seed cartridges on either side of that thing. And it sits in a thing called a vertical acre. Why is it called a vertical acre? Because the harvest over a period of a year is about an acre. So in 32 square feet, we're growing about an acre's worth of plant. And then the lights and the water and the electronics and the sensors are all built into this thing. Okay. And then we put two of these together and they call it the grow unit. We put either three grow units or 12 grow units or 24 grow units into a room. That's called a grow area. Remember back to the scaling yes. and the modularity. Yes. You see now all of a sudden that's the maximum size of a grow room. And then depending on how many square feet we have, we then build up multiple grow rooms. And the grow rooms are custom built. We actually manufacture the walls and the ceilings and we deliver the whole system. And then we have sensors and software that are built. So it's, if you think about your Apple phone, or your, mm-hmm. right, you open up your phone, all the components are designed for the phone, right? This is one of the rules of scaling. And then all our components are all standardized components. The stainless steel that we use for a Acre are non-standard. We have to get them manufactured, but any guy or any lady or any, I guess what would be other, any they person can manufacture. I try very hard to be socially <laughs> appropriate, even for being an old white yeah. guy. Yeah, I'm an old white guy, but it's hard work, but I'm working real hard on it because I think it's important. Anyway, so we have the stainless steel and that's the only thing that gets custom manufactured for us. Everything is off the shelf components and then we build our own lighting systems. We don't, that remember that unit economics we talked about earlier? Like most people, when they do out an indoor vertical farm, most of their costs are buying lighting systems from Philips or from, we said, well, why don't we just build our own and manufacture our own so it can be exactly what we need for what we need. We're not taking something and making it. And that's kind of what it physically looks like. And then it's a sealed room. You walk in and then we have these things called germinators, which are seed cartridges go into before they go in. And those seed cartridges double up as a piece of equipment that's used for growing the microgreens. And that's all controlled with software and everything else. What was the biggest challenge for you as you were putting these systems together to get everything working together efficiently? Money. Always money. Always not having enough money, not having enough capitalization. But I'm also, remember I did that whole history thing? Yeah. And one of the things I've learned is if you have too much money, it doesn't work very well for you. So there is a company who shall remain nameless that in our space, a couple of them who got tremendous amounts of funding. And they just spent the money on really cool gadgets for harvesting and everything else. And I'm thinking, I didn't have that kind of money. So I had to figure out the cheapest, best way of doing it. The lighting is a good example, right? Originally, you know, to go out and buy a lighting system, you know, of any kind of, we need a lot of light, right? People don't understand the need for light, right? And I don't want to give away every one of my secrets, but let's just say that lighting is really important. And what happens is if you go buy a lighting system, they're very expensive. But if you go buy all the components for the lighting system, all of a sudden the same amount of light, same amount of system becomes very inexpensive relative to, you know, what people are paying $1,000 for, I can build for 50 bucks, right? And it's a better light. (laughs) 
And yes, with your experience and with the team you've put together, you're able to get everything now working together efficiently. It's all working. Yeah. You know, and we're tracking all the data and, you know, how many days for how many ounces, right? I will tell you one of my secrets that you promise not to tell anybody else. Yeah. <laughs> Just between you and I. Just you and I here. <laughs> okay. Most people focus in on reducing the cost of electricity. That's dumb. It's really, really dumb. They really do should do is do like sale and focus in on how to increase the yield for every kilowatt of electricity you're using. They're looking at the wrong formula, looking at the spreadsheet. They're looking at the spreadsheet. They're not looking at the analysis of it. When I was in computer science, when I was in university, I took a, a business course and two business courses. And one of them, the one I remember most was all the analysis that you had to do of your income statement and your income statement and your balance sheet and all the ratios you did, all of those ratios. I spent hours on our ratios looking at, well, what happens if I, you know, can shrink this by one day, my growth? That's yield per dollar of electricity, right? So the analysis of how you look at the problem is totally different than looking, oh, I want to reduce my electricity bill. I don't care what my electricity bill is. What I do, and also... The other thing that people do is they, you know, they always look at the wrong numbers. I'm looking at how can I increase my dollar of revenue for the same capital cost, right? It's a different way of viewing it. It seems obvious when public, of course, that's what you're doing. <laughs> and it's not only different, but it really is when you say, hey, what happened? You know, I'll tell you a story. Nelson Rockefeller, he was the guy who created Standard Oil, Okay. This is the Zale mindset. Now, Rockefeller was probably one of the best businessmen that ever existed. And what happened was back in his day, right? I hate the expression back in the day, but back in his day, they used to sell oil in jars, right? They would sell oil in petroleum or kerosene that would be used to light your lamps. And he was walking through, and this is a story that people tell over and over again. So, you know, it's not special for me. And what happened was they would put the tops on the jars and they would twist it four times. And he said, why are you twisting it four times? Why don't you only twist it three times or two times? And essentially what he was doing was he's shrinking the little cost of the top and the time that it took the guy to do it. That's unit costs. You know, people think about the big dollars, but you got to really look at the pennies that get repeated over and over and over again. And then you put all this into your Excel spreadsheet. I mean, I sit in Excel all day long, <laughs> right? And I'm yeah. looking at each part of it and how, you know, I have these stainless steel units. So we put, like I said, 24 in a room, right? I don't care if I save 50 bucks on the, on the Excel spreadsheet, on the $50 or $100 on the stainless steel. It's not going to make a difference in my life. But if I can shrink the amount of time that the lights are on for five minutes every single day, which is only a couple of pennies, but I have the but lights on every, <laughs> or I shrink the wire by an inch or two, where I used, you know, that's where all the money, and then it comes to the yield. If I can get another quarter ounce yield or a 5% yield on every turn of my vegetables, what's the effect going to be on my bottom line? And it becomes huge, right? And it's pennies. Each one of those are pennies. But we're in a, indoor vertical farming is a penny industry. You're selling stuff, well, you know, at $5 a pound. You sell something at $5 a pound, you got to send a lot of pounds to pay for an $80,000, you know, farm manager. 
Yes. I applaud you doing that meticulous analysis and that hard work of like looking at those, you know, what might seem to be pennies saved. But I think it's interesting because you have a perspective of people who, you know, when, naturally when you get a lot of funding, you feel like a sigh of relief and you feel like you have some cushion and you have some space to kind of try different things. And, you know, when you're looking at every single cost and every single expense really matters, you know, when you're, you know, doing it all yourself and you're bootstrapped. And I think you having that discipline to look at it on a line by line basis and figuring out the specifics of is this something that can move the needle slightly incrementally, but when you add those up over time, it's sort of like when they talk about compounding interest, right? <laughs> it's that same effect. And so I really applaud you doing that. So to the people that are in our business, think about that. If you do a cycle, you know, in the hydroponic guys, they're doing maybe 14 or 16 cycles per year. If they get one more cycle out of it, they've increased their top line by 5%, but their operating costs probably don't change because they're going to run their lights. Let's just take a simple model. They're running lights 12 hours a day, 365 days a year. Okay. That's their electricity cost. Now, if they can get one more cycle out of it, they just increased their capital costs haven't increased. Their operating costs haven't increased, but their revenue has gone up. Now, if they can, let's say that's, so that's 13 is probably around 28 days for a cycle. Okay. If they get it down to 27 cycles, 27 days or 26 days, which is like, who cares? It's only two days. Huge bottom line effect. And so as we get close to wrapping up this conversation, this has been really, really helpful and, and really exciting to hear your perspective on it. Because I think it's something that's it's almost like a breath of fresh air in terms of the, thinking about this at the really granular level. And especially for folks that are just getting started, I've been you know consciously thinking of new farmers getting into this space and understanding what some of the challenges might be. And I think this is a great reminder that, you know, you really have to understand all these costs, all these expenses and how each one of those move the lever and how they affect your ability to price things and your cycles. And it's so important. And I think, you know, people just are focused on the big upstarts. And I think there's a lot of room for discussion in terms of what's happening in this space. And I'm really happy to have your perspective. So, Zale, when you think about what you've gone through, I always like to ask this question just to you know, have you think about you know, what's top of mind for you. But what's a tough question you've had to ask yourself recently? What am I doing wrong? Hmm. Oh, I try to ask that question every single day. What am I doing wrong? What could I be doing better? Where can I get that incremental improvement on myself? In the end, I'm the leader and everybody's looking to me for leadership, right? And they're looking for me to have all the answers. And so you need to always be asking yourself that. And, you know, why haven't I raised, you know, $800 million like everybody else? You know, I'm such a smart guy, right? Or I'm whatever such, I actually rely on my looks more than I <laughs> rely on my brains. But, you know, but why haven't I raised the $800 million, right? Why have they done that, right? Like, why aren't I, there's so much money been thrown at this industry. Why hasn't it coming at me? Yeah, I imagine you'd be running a different business. I mean, it'd be interesting to see you know, what you could do with an investment like that with the discipline that you have in place already. So I think, you know, obviously this leads me to my next question, which given this, the audience of this podcast, it's your peers in the industry, your colleagues, people who are interested in this space, who've been here for a while, who are just getting started. So I've been leaving room at the end of these conversations for anything that you have that would be an ask or a message to folks in the industry. What comes to mind for you? So, okay, I'm going to give you what I really think is really, really important. Remember I talked about that I do the history and I read business history. So two big stories, Nelson Rockefeller and Henry Ford, both come to mind. 
in Nelson Rockefeller in the oil industry in the 1850s, 1860s, 1870s, and then Henry Ford in the early 1900s. Those two guys did two things. See, they both worked very hard with everybody in their industry because they were working. Nelson Rockefeller did it in a really nasty way. He said, you have two choices. You can either go broke or you can be business partners with me. Henry Ford didn't do it that way. Henry Ford said, let's work together as the market is so big. I do not need to compete against anybody. I can sell my technology happily for the next 10 years and sell it you know, as much as I possibly want. And I will never you know, saturate the market. So people in the industry need to work together as a team, right? We need to help each other. Like, you know, my ideas, somebody should steal my ideas and say, hey, you know, where are unit economics? Let's get Zale here. Let's, you know, get him in and to talk to us about unit economics. The other side of it, so that's the unselfish thing, but I think it's kind of selfish because all boats will rise, right? The other part is we're looking for partners. We're looking for people who say, well, I want to be, in, we already have one in South Carolina. It's a, it's a private label guy. His name is Roel. He said, I want to be in this industry. I don't want to reinvent the technology. I want to buy your technology. I want to work with you, but I want to own indoor vertical farming because I want to make money selling vegetables. So I'm looking for people who just want to be those kinds of guys. You know, want to own their technology. They want to own a brand. They want to invest in a brand. They want to, you know, be an operator. That's what we're looking for. We're not really looking for investors, so to speak. We're looking for guys who want to own an indoor vertical farm, either own and operate or we'll operate it for them and they just want to own it. Or they want to be in this business, but don't want to suffer and say, oh, this looks really yeah. easy. And then spend a million dollars of R&D later. They want the Zale spreadsheet. They want the Zale spreadsheet. Yeah, and we just <laughs> give it to them and just make it. And then all they're worrying about is finding customers and selling products and building their own community and giving jobs. What's been helpful for you when you think about that next leg of having quality product, you've got the economics are working for you now. And now, you know, there's the challenge of marketing and getting it out and having people realize like what it is that you're offering and it's something that they want. You know, where have you seen success? You know, to the extent you can talk about anything, any of that, what's been a good learning for you there? So we're now working with community. We have like a little bit of success that's now starting to rock with community colleges. So community colleges saying, hey, we want to run indoor vertical farming programs. Can we buy your technology? Can we be part of that? We, in Philadelphia, we're working with high schools and we're working with the Drexel Autism Institute. So we're working with folks, young kids, teaching them about food and growing and stuff like that. And then looking, creating jobs. I'm a big believer in, I'm an urban I want to put our system in urban places. So we're working in opportunity zones. So we drop, you know, we have all these old buildings. Our technology fits in 10 foot, in 10 foot to the rafters, right? Or to the joists, right? So we want to be in those old buildings that are sitting empty. And we want people to put our farms in there and create jobs in opportunity zones. And we want to pay living wage jobs. It's kind of where I'm hoping, like I want, you know, Chicago, Detroit, New York, Philadelphia, Boston, St. Louis, any place that needs jobs and wants good paying jobs. The food deserts. <laughs> food deserts. I firmly believe indoor vertical farming will solve, will contribute to solving the climate crisis because most of food is moved in North America, right? You move everything from California to across the country. Half the cost and half the, the thing is just moving the stuff, right? And fail. So it's a way of just running out of truckers. Anyway, they can just go on and on and on. That's like a whole other podcast. Yeah, yeah. Zale <laughs> pontificating on that crap. Sorry. The produce <laughs> Sorry, supply chain podcast, yeah. Yeah, but it's just, this is a future. 
right? We're, the industry's struggling and it's fits and starts. But if you look at the history of any, the car industry, the oil train industry, every big industry goes through this. The guys who are big now, you won't even hear about them in five years. Yeah, like they say, history leaves clues. And I think what's been clear for me throughout this conversation is how much you've paid attention to those clues, how much you've followed the lead of those who have gone before us, who've had success in business, and also, you know, with an eye towards, you know, watching everything very closely in terms of economics and profits and how to scale properly and how to grow properly. And, you know, you kept referencing McDonald's and obviously there's a, you know, standardization comes to mind when you talk about them. And so I applaud you for everything you've done so far and you've had a lot of success. And and I think it's attributable to just, you know, having that sharp pencil (laughs) and having the experience of having those, you know, we talked about earlier, those failures that you had, you know, they set you up for what to do and also what not to do. So I think everything has come together together nicely for you. So I'm glad we're able to share your story. Well, thank you. Thank you. This is great. Yes. Great questions. It's very good. <laughs> <laughs> so any parting words, if thoughts about, you know, where we're headed, you know, we're going through some challenging times with some of the news that's come out, but you know, what has you excited, Zale, when you think about the next 12 months? We have people lining up to talk to us. I'll tell you one thing that's kind of exciting. We're talking to some 25 different cities. I have a great sales lady and she's reaching out and talking to city planners and cities. And they're now talking about integrating indoor vertical farms into new housing projects, right? That's great. So it's built into the design of that. The future is incredibly rosy. Like, okay, so people have screwed up and big deal. They had too much money. They wasted the money. You know, they got themselves nice cars and whatever. But the industry's going there. It's it's going. There are people who are growing. There are people who are selling. I, you know, I can't remember the name of the guy. Kimball Musk's company did a great deal with GFS, right? That was really exciting when I saw that. I don't think the technology is such a great technology. However, but I think what he did was absolutely amazing, right? And Cisco will do the same thing. And Aeromarkle and all the big boys will start, the girls, I guess big girls will start yeah. doing the same kind of things. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I appreciate you connecting with me. I'm glad we were able to share the story because I just love telling the stories of founders of companies large and small who've been doing it for a while, who are just getting started. And I think yours is going to be really inspirational, especially for folks understanding, you know, the building blocks of what makes a farm successful. And so I encourage folks to learn more, uh, to visit your site. Local Grown Salad is the website. Anywhere else you want to send folks to learn more? Oh, LinkedIn. LinkedIn. Okay. Monday through Thursday, I post something all on why indoor vertical farming is just like the greatest thing since sliced bread. Yeah, we're active on LinkedIn as well. So we'll make sure to have all your website and your LinkedIn profile, anything you've provided for us, we'll have that in the show notes as well. So if anyone's listening and want to connect with Zale and this team, they'll, they'll be able to do that. I really appreciate you taking the time to come on. I really enjoyed sharing this story. Thank you. Thank you. Look forward. Thanks again to Zale for coming on the show and sharing his story. Lively, lively conversation. I loved his energy. I loved his enthusiasm and his positivity, which is a breath of fresh air. As always, full show notes available at verticalfarmingpodcast.com. Summary, timestamps, key takeaways, resources, mentions, quotes. It's all there at your disposal for your benefit. Thanks to our season seven title sponsor, Cultivated. If you're looking to a vertical farm and don't know where to start or which technology would suit your needs, reach out to them today. And best of all, their service is free because they work on behalf of their partners. Learn more at cultivated.com. And that's spelled C-U-L-T-I-V-A-T-D.com. Just leave out that last E. Podcast production and marketing provided by Fullcast. Learn more at fullcast.co to see if a show would be a good fit for your brand. As a reminder, if you're enjoying this show, please leave us a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP. We'll be sure to read those out on future episodes. By we, I mean me. (laughs) 
Tune in next week for my conversation with yet another fascinating leader from the world of vertical farming. This time it's Alexander Caps, and he is the CEO of Greener Crop, and we connected in Dubai courtesy of the Cultivated Team. Great conversation. Looking forward to sharing that with you next week. Until we meet again, here's to your health. Thanks for listening. To read the full show notes for this episode, which includes any links mentioned in the episode, as well as a full show transcription, visit verticalfarmingpodcast.com. There, you can sign up for our email list to be notified when new episodes are published.